Well, Hub City, it's great to be great to be together as we uh, we jump in to this final message on being around the table. We've spent the last eight weeks looking at uh, incredible moments that happened around meals and tables and gatherings with other people and life-changing moments when you put friends, food, and faith all around the uh, around the table together. And and I think what what I've seen throughout this series is just this great reminder of this rhythm. We need community. We need sustenance, not just for our bodies, but for our relationships. And we need each other. Uh, we, need, we need to hang out with other Jesus friends, right? We need people. We need people in our lives. And uh, I've been encouraged to hear uh, simultaneously throughout this series, we've had dinner groups going. We had, uh, we had a handful of different groups uh, in homes meeting, talking about these things. They would do the table talk cards that are on the seats. They would talk about some of this subject matter each week. And just hearing some of these stories, I mean, people are, are uh, just growing together in, in conversation and meals and time together. Um, even this week when there was a practical need for, for somebody in one of those dinner groups, uh, they're literally sandbagging uh, at that person's house. I mean, just that's what community does is in our most desperate moments, uh, we show up for each other and community happens. And I think what we've seen throughout this series is it's given us hopefully a taste, right? Play on words there, meant to be. Play on words, right? Uh, a taste of something really good. And that as we head into the holidays and then into the new year, this is something we, sh- we should be pursuing and developing is relationships with other people and, and developing community. And so uh, we never want to underestimate the importance of table time, being around other folks talking about these things. This is our last week with table talk questions. Uh, they're in the video description comments or on your seats. Uh, talk about these things with people. Uh, the Advent series has a, a, in the guide, it has questions because we want you to talk about these things. And sometimes when you gather around with other people, it's like, well, what do we talk about? Well, launch into that. But what we've seen around the table is Jesus do a lot of memorable things, uniting people, Accepting people, humbling people, teaching people, providing for people, restoring people, all around the table setting. And today we're ending with Jesus gathering around a miraculous table. That Jesus does the miraculous around the table. And a table to me seems like an unexpected spot to do something miraculous, right? It's like going to McDonald's for prom. That just seems wrong, right? Like it just doesn't seem like those things would fit. Prom and McDonald's. What? Or a marriage proposal at a gas station. Just doesn't seem like those two things should go together, right? But think about it for a moment. Let's think about it. Think about what, we, what is that ideal environment when it comes to miraculous moments. How would you describe the environment for a miraculous moment? You wouldn't think a table right out of the gate. Picture it in your mind if you were to think of, okay, the perfect setting for a miracle to take place. What, would you, what comes to mind? What stereotypes? What imagery? What, uh, what cliches, if you will? It's okay. We're going to speak in church right now. Spit it out. A mega church. It's got to be a big venue, right? Okay. All right. What else comes to mind? No water in my house. No water in your house. Oh, yes. That is a miracle. I meant more, not what is a miracle. I meant more... Uh, where would you see a miracle take place, right? In a in kind of a, a hyper-spiritual environment, what would you think of is that imagery? You wouldn't think of a table. You would think of what? A mountaintop experience, right? Highly emotionally charged, maybe. Uh, how about mood lighting? Miracles happen with mood lighting, don't they? We dim the lights. 
when I was in college, it was really trendy to have candles on stage at church, right? And all these college kids needed cool mood lighting with, with candles because the Holy Spirit would only show up with candle lights uh, around. Uh, how many of you think of miracles when it, when it happens in mission trips? Well, on a mission field, that's where lives get changed. That's where God does it. You've heard stories or seen pictures or, or seen those moments firsthand. You think of the mission field, you think, yeah, of course a miracle is going to happen, right? Across the world in some other country, uh, yes, that would happen. Camps, summer camps, retreats, conferences, a worship concert that you might go to. These are images and environments that we might think of where that's going to happen. What else? What other imagery, words, pictures come to mind when you think of like, yep, that's the right mood, right? Set the mood. Not for a date, but for a miracle. We're going to set the mood, Holy Spirit. What would you do? What would you picture? What would you see in your mind? A hospital. Miracles happen in hospitals, right? We're surrounded by people. Yeah. What else? A prayer meeting. A worship night. Right? How Pentecostal does that service look in your mind? Are there any flags being waved? We're a Pentecostal church, if you don't know that. We just don't wave flags. Right? But how many of you, when you think of miracles happening, you picture a lot of swaying? You didn't want to say it because it sounded wrong to say and irreverent, but you pictured swaying. There had to be swaying. There had to be hands. There had to be unknown languages being spoken. How many of you thought of anointing oil? There had to be anointing oil. There had to be pastors just splashing it. People getting knocked down. How many of you pictured people getting knocked down? If it's a miracle, if they knock you down. Pastor Jim, who used to be uh, uh, my boss... Uh, Pastor Jim Hayford, who is also my grandfather-in-law, used to say, if God has to knock you down, you better be different when you get up. And I don't mean to be irreverent in that description or mock that miracles happen in these settings. I believe that they do. I believe that I've seen it firsthand in, in a summer camp where people got healed. When I was in the mission field one time on a short-term trip, we had a generator that wasn't working. We were literally in the middle of nowhere in a Philippine island with one road and their generator that we needed to work wasn't working for our, our presentation of the gospel. And we literally laid hands on a, on a generator. <laughs> you ever laid hands on a generator? Right? Honda. <laughs> right? We just started like, ha, should have bought a Honda. Right? But I bought a Mitsubishi. You know? And we, we started speaking over it. It, it turned on. I believe that God can do the miraculous in those settings. But I also believe that God can do it in any setting. Not just with the right mood lighting or the right emotion or the right setting or the right number of people in the room. Because when we look at Jesus, miracles happen not just in the hyper-spiritual environments or not just in church. They happened around tables. Meals. Look at the early church. You see two very famous miracles in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8. These are two distinct miracles that Jesus does as he feeds the 5,000 and then he feeds the 4,000. Jesus does a miracle around a meal, taking a few loaves and fish and feeding thousands. In Acts chapter 20, the church gathered up and it says that they gathered to break bread together and the apostle Paul began preaching and he preached all night. Some of you think I preached long. 
It says that he preached way into the middle of the night, so much so that one young man was sitting up in a window and got drowsy. Must have been really charismatic, that Apostle Paul. Because in the middle of the night, he's preaching, and that young man falls down, drops dead. Like literally, fell down, hit the ground, died. Paul goes over, prays, lays on top of him, and he's alive. Miracles happen when we're gathered around meals and breaking bread and and the church gathers together. In John chapter 2, Cabin just read this story. Jesus goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine. When we gather around with other Christians and we put Jesus at the center of our fellowship and our bond, miracles happen. The impossible can happen when we gather together and put Jesus at the center of that gathering. Think about it. I mean, a couple of fish and loaves of bread feeding thousands of people. Does that seem possible to anybody in this room? That seems impossible. How about turning a dead kid into a living kid? Does that seem possible? No, that seems impractical. That seems impossible. How about turning water into wine? Like, I've got my Nalgene of water, and if all of a sudden that just turned into wine... I don't think Mythbusters could explain why that happened and how that happened. Like, it would just, they'd be stumped. But we read through the Gospels. We read through the book of Acts, and we see the early church continue to have moments where the unexplainable happens, where the impossible happens, where physics and, and reality and the rules of nature seem to be bent by God. The early church was described by a a constant occurrence of wonders and signs. In Acts chapter 2, we've read this passage a few times throughout this series because it shows the early church gathering together to eat and pray and talk and study and grow. It's this great community passage, but there's a verse in there that I don't want us to miss, and it's verse 43. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 43, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. This happened repeatedly. This wasn't strange. This wasn't, whoa, what was that? They were filled with awe, but it it happened enough that Luke wrote wrote it down to say, "This, this happened. Not once, not even twice. Like, it was repeated. You think about the Apostle Paul talking about the Holy Spirit, and he, he describes that the Holy Spirit fills believers up, right? This phrase of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we are immersed in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit to move through. And he uses gifts and, and, and abilities to be able to do what? Build the church, encourage the church, build up the church, establish the church, right? And he uses different gifts uh, within the church, these spiritual gifts that you might hear about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he talks about gifts of wisdom and knowledge and unknown languages, interpretation, uh, prophecy, faith, all of these different things. And then there's two gifts there that sometimes get forgotten when we're listing them out because everybody wants to speak in tongues and everybody wants prophecy. But let's not forget verse 9 and 10 where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, and to someone else, the Holy Spirit gives the gift of healing. And he gives one person the power to perform miracles. So this is the operational function of the Holy Spirit within the church. This is not just reserved for conferences and mega churches and concerts and mission fields. This is describing that the same Holy Spirit 
that is in them is in us. It's not supposed to be weird. It's not meant to be uncommon. It's not meant to be uncharacteristic of the modern church. But the question is, does the characterization of the miraculous church describe the modern church? Because you look at the early church and you see miracles are happening. Luke describes it. Paul describes it. The Gospels describe it. Acts describes it. The early church saw the miraculous happening. And I wonder, are we seeing that within the modern church today? Yes? No? Maybe? And I've wrestled with why. And I think if we could figure that out and we could answer it, we'd probably sell a lot of books and have a big church because we'd see a lot of miracles happen if we could figure out how to uncork that. And I wrestle with it for myself, and I, I wonder if some of us wrestle with this same question. I think for myself, I can't speak for you, but I wonder for myself if I've missed out on the miraculous because I have become preoccupied with the question, what if God doesn't answer my miracle request? What if God says no? And so I will come into church or I will go into a life group or I'll gather around the table or I will come before the Lord in prayer and I'm already prepared for him to say no. Now, is that an important question, right? What if God says no to my miracle? That's an important question. That is a vital question, a, a valuable question. It is important for us to process in dialogue, and I've processed through that a lot personally and with other folks, and I think that that is an important question. We all need to wrestle with that question because what it will do is allow you to trust God that even when he says no, he sees bigger and better than you. That's an important question, right? What if God says no? Well, i got to trust that that God up there that sees all and is all knows better than Sean's little tiny perspective. <laughs> so good question. It's a valuable question. It's an important question, but it's not today's question. Today is not what if God says no. Today is do I still believe God could say yes? Because I've become so preoccupied with, well, he's probably going to say no. So am I ready to prepare for that? that I don't come in anticipating the extraordinary. I don't come into a prayer time or a, a church gathering or I don't come into a small group environment or I don't come into a gathering around a table like we see with Jesus and I don't come in expecting the miraculous. I come in expecting what I can comprehend, what I can control. I'm preparing myself that he's already saying no. And the problem with that is we worship a good, good God that wants to still do the miraculous too that can still do the miraculous? Do I believe that God can still say yes to my miracle? That is the question today. It is not to dismiss the other question. It is just to say that is not what we're tackling today. We've talked about those things before, and we will talk about it again. God's going to say no. But today is, do you believe that God can say yes? I mean, think about it for yourself. I can't answer it for you. Do we really believe that God can do the miraculous today? The God that could split the seas open for Moses and the, and the people of Israel. The God that could turn water into wine. The God that could multiply loaves and fish. The God that said you would move mountains. Do I really believe that he is powerful enough to do the impossible in 2021?
is the same all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God in the early church, the same God today in the modern church? And if the answer is yes, and I believe that it is, I believe we need to come into the moments anticipating God to do the impossible. Believing that he can do the unexplainable. If you answer that that is the same God then as it is today, that means that nature and physics and all the rules of science can be bent by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. And we look at this story in John chapter 2, and we see God do the miraculous around a table, around a meal, around a time of feasting and banquets. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. And he takes his friends and his mom, and they're hanging out at a wedding. Jesus was social. He liked to party. He doesn't say why. He's not the best man. He's not a groomsman. He's just there. Jesus is at this wedding. His mom's there. His friends are there. He's hanging out. And then the party has a problem. John chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So they go to this wedding, and they run out of wine. And what's funny is we live in a time right now where it seems like everything is on short supply, doesn't it? Right? I went to Sherwin-Williams. They didn't have paint. I'm like, it's the one thing you sell. You don't have paint? They're like, yeah, we have a paint shortage. I'm like, why is there a paint shortage? Right? Go to Starbucks, their, their pastry cart thing, empty. I'm like, where's the pastries? I want a croissant. Oh, no, sorry, we don't have any croissants. What do you have? This, like, kale salad. I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Went to Old Navy, looking for new jeans. Didn't have jeans. I'm like, are you serious? You're Old Navy. You don't have jeans. Going to a wedding and them running out of wine is Old Navy running out of jeans or Sherwin-Williams running out of paint. You go to a wedding, they're there to party. And they need wine. It's like running out of candy on Halloween night. You're going to have trick-or-treaters sticking their hands out, and you're like, I'm sorry, here's an apple. Here's a stapler. Here's some potatoes. I don't know. I got nothing. Here's some Bisquick. Go make some pancakes tomorrow. You know, without wine at this wedding, it is a super downer. So what does Mary do? She gets Jesus involved. They take this, these giant jars that are served for religious ceremony and religious cleansing, and, and they fill them up with water, and they, as it says in the text, they scoop it up, give it to the master of the banquet, he enjoys it, it's the best wine ever, it's so good, there's a bountiful amount of it, and, and think about how much is in there, there's all these big, big, big jars, these aren't like little mason jars, right, they're, they're anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons, so you're looking at 120 to 180 gallons of wine, replenished. I, I did some Google math. That is roughly 600 to 900 bottles of wine. They were going to party. <laughs> Jesus solves this problem, and, and this is not, is this a life or death problem? I mean, maybe if the guy holds to the party, that would be bad. But this isn't a tragedy. This isn't life or death. This is, this is a social dilemma. But it mattered to people. And it mattered to Jesus 
And I think what is important to recognize in this story is that Jesus operates in what seems like an inconsequential situation. It seems like an ordinary problem. This doesn't seem life or death. This doesn't seem like eternity is at stake. It's wine at a wedding. And yet Jesus shows up and does something miraculous. And I think what it teaches me is that Jesus can do the miraculous in the mundane. And I think some of us look at our situations and our need for God to intervene, and we belittle it because it doesn't seem monumental. We're waiting for monumental change. It's not a big deal. How many of us have disqualified our needs? It's not a big deal. It's not life or death. It's not eternity's at stake. But it matters to you. It matters to you. Jesus can do the miraculous in what seems like mundane. What seems small? What seems ordinary? What seems inconsequential? Jesus can show up and do the miraculous. And we get to be like Mary who recognize those situations. And what does Mary do? She comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you do something about this? I believe you can do something about this. I don't know what she thought was going to happen. I don't think she thought it because she just said, do whatever he says. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just says, they're out of wine. Go to this guy. He'll figure it out. And that, I think, is our heart in this. I don't know what Jesus is going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. But you know what? There is a desperate need for a miracle in this moment. Jesus, would you intervene? Would you do something? What if we anticipated Jesus doing the impossible at our next mealtime? It's not just another meal. It's not just gathering around the table with some friends for dinner. But we brought that same anticipation that if you were going on a mission trip, you would anticipate the miraculous, right? If I said, oh, we're going to go to Honduras for a week and go serve people. We're going to go to Uganda. We're going to go to Germany. We're going to go all over the world. We're going to go do these things for the kingdom of God. You'd be like, yes, let's do it. If I said, we're going to go work in the homeless encampment down in Seattle, you'd be like, yes, God's going to do the miraculous. We're going to see breakthrough. If I said, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer night, you'd be like, God's going to do the miraculous. He's going to do the incredible. If you saw a certain speaker, a certain communicator, a certain pastor, a certain conference, you'd come in with an anticipation. What if we came to dinner with that anticipation? The same God that shows up in those settings shows up at your dinner table, in your living room, in this building. And to not overlook the everyday moments that everybody else would say, well, that's just ordinary, that's just church, that's just life group, that's just dinner. But you're looking at it like Mary and saying, this is an opportunity for the divine, for the miraculous, for God to show up, because I believe that Jesus can do the miraculous in a mundane moment. Jesus can do the miraculous while you're sitting around the lunch table at work or while you're having dinner with your kids and they're throwing chicken nuggets across the room. Jesus can do the miraculous in what seems like the mundane. And what I I find interesting in studying this passage is that the miracle has meaning. There's purpose behind it. There's a reason Jesus did this miracle. In John chapter 2, verse 11, we see it says this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And John repeatedly, the author John who wrote this gospel, repeatedly uses this phrase that he, he says right here, miraculous signs. 
not just miracles, but miraculous signs. And the, the commentators that I was reading were pointing out that phrasing that John is using, that he is pointing out these aren't just miracles, these aren't just occurrences, these are miraculous signs. Miraculous signs. We're getting there, we're getting there, yes. Miraculous signs. And what does a sign do? What does a sign do? It gives direction. It points to something, right? Now, don't show the picture yet, Tyler, but uh, this week I got to go to the new Climate Pledge Arena. I got to go see the Kraken play. It was very exciting, right? But to get down there, I knew where the arena was, but we couldn't remember what exit to take, and we couldn't remember where to park. And so what did we look for? Signs. And when we get in the arena, I've been to Key Arena, but this is no longer Key Arena, right? This is now Climate Pledge Arena, and there's it's glass everywhere and new entrances. I didn't know where the entrance was. What am I looking for? Signs. And I didn't know where my seat was going to be, and so I had to look around. And I see 204 plastered on a wall. What is that? It's a sign. And what is that sign doing? Directing me. It's pointing me in a direction. Is the sign the end-all, be-all? No, I did not go and say, oh, this is section 204. This is where I'm supposed to be and just stand in the aisle. No, I followed the signs into the entrances and into the gates and into the aisle and then into my row and then into my seat. And I didn't want to sit in that seat. I wanted to sit in a different seat. But I had to follow the correct ticket seat and I sat in my seat and I found the destination. The destination was not the sign. The destination was what? This was the destination. Show us, Tyler. Boom, that was the destination. That was what it was leading me to. All the signs were pointing me towards that. To sit at the arena. To watch the game. To enjoy the atmosphere and be there in the presence of the Seattle Kraken as they release the Kraken. And I think what John is communicating here is this idea that is very important for us to remember. The miracle is not the end-all be-all. He uses the phrase miraculous sign to remind us that the miracle is not the destination. The miracle is a sign. That is not the seat. The destination is what? Jesus. The destination is eternity. The destination is the presence of God and being with God and, and understanding our relationship with God. That is the destination. A destination of heaven and eternity and being in his presence forever. That is the destination. And I think it is important for us to remember the miracle is not the end-all be-all. It is a sign. And I think it's really important for us as a Pentecostal church to remember that. Because Pentecostal churches get really excited about miracles and signs. And we may find ourselves chasing a feeling, chasing an environment, chasing a healing in a feeling. But it's not the destination we're chasing what that points us to. And we see that in verse 11, that this was one of his first miraculous signs. And it says then, John proceeds to say, he thus revealed his glory. That's the destination. To be in the presence of Jesus. And what do they see? The glory, the ah, the moment. It radiates from him. It just reverberates. They just see it. And what do they see? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the chosen one. He is the one that can turn water into wine. He can do the miraculous. To grasp the identity of Jesus is the destination. Not the healing and the feeling and the miracle. The meaning of the miracle is to point us to the Messiah. We need to remember that. 
The miracle points us to the Messiah. And John is trying to point people as he writes about this to the Messiah. He uses this story to talk about the long-awaited Messiah that was going to be coming. And he points it out by showing us this Messiah figure that they had associated with provision. Well, what does Jesus do in this moment? He provides. He provides an abundance of wine. And not just bottom shelf, bad, get rid of it wine. Top shelf, good wine. The Messiah was going to bring something of abundance and something good and something of blessing. The Messiah was coming and they were expecting that and anticipating that. And John is using this story to say, there he is. He's writing about it to say, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. And he uses this imagery also of the banquet table, this constant reminder. And we've talked about it on multiple occasions throughout this series that the banquet table was representative. It was image, imagery that reminded us of the kingdom of God, that heaven is a banquet. It's a party. And we are invited to it. And so John is using this story in John chapter 2 to bring in the, the, the Messiah figure, to show us the Messiah has arrived. Now, why does Jesus do it? It points to the Messiah, right? Why does Jesus turn water into wine? It's a miracle that pointed to him as the Messiah, but it also did another thing. It benefited the church. The miracles of Jesus benefit the church. And what's the benefit? In this moment, John chapter 2, what's the, what's the benefit? It's not a cool story. It's not a YouTube-worthy moment. It's not, oh, great, we got a lot of wine. We're good. And that's the problem sometimes is when we make the miracle the main deal, the main dish, we miss out on, on what Jesus is really trying to get up and do here. The true blessing is not more wine. The true blessing is not a physical healing. The true blessing is not provision from the heavens. Because if that's the true blessing, well, then I'm chasing a blessing that eventually I'm going to drink all that wine. Eventually I'm going to spend that provision. Eventually that same person that was healed is going to die. So that can't be the eternal blessing that we see. There's something that can't be taken away, something that can't be deteriorating, something that can't be disposed of. And that true blessing is what we see happen with the church right there in this moment in verse 11. It says that he revealed his glory, and then later on John says this, his disciples put their faith in him. His disciples put their faith in him. They see who Jesus really is, and they believe. Can that be taken away? Does that deteriorate? Does that get disposed of, upgraded, replaced? In this moment, Jesus does the miraculous to point to him as the Messiah, but also to build his church. The miraculous is meant to multiply his church. Not my church, not your church, but the miraculous is meant to multiply his church. When the miraculous happens, people's faith develops and the church multiplies. When the miraculous happens, people see that God is real, and the church multiplies. When the miraculous happens, we begin to see that the living God that we worship engages with us today. When the miraculous happens, we, we see moments where God shows up, and what do we do with that? We tell people. And what happens when we tell people about Jesus? The church multiplies. The church matures. The church 
develops and is established and is built and is growing. That is what can't be taken away. The ministry that Jesus does in and through his church. That's what the miracles are pointing to, is to Jesus is the Messiah. And when we know that Jesus is the Messiah, man, we make him the main deal. Not the signs. Not the wonders. But we understand that those things can be used by God to build his church. To grow his church. That he wants your faith to deepen. That he wants your neighbor to be impacted by the gospel. That he wants to do the miraculous in his church today so he can grow his church. Not just in number, okay? Don't, don't mishear that. But to multiply is, is, a, is a greater depth and growth of spiritual depth and maturation process as well. Think of the depth of their faith that began right in that moment as they watched Jesus do this. And I think what we see today as we talk about this is that the miraculous table is not just reserved for generations ago at the ancient church. The miraculous table is meant for us today. And it's not because we're Pentecostal or Foursquare or Charismatic or it's not because we do the right things and we have the right formula figured out. There is no formula to this. I think where my heart is, is seeing that we worship the same all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God that they did. And he is at the center of our church. He's at the center of our life groups. He is at the center of our dinners. And when we do that, when we see that, we see the impossible. We see the miraculous. We see the unexplainable. And we can see that today. And so we're going to conclude our time today, and we're going to we're going to worship and pray together. And wherever you're at, I want you to just engage with Jesus. To be like Mary in this moment. To say, Jesus, I need you to intervene in this situation. I don't know how you're going to do it, what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, but I know you can do it. And we bring Jesus into that situation. And so Bobby's going to come up and lead us in a time of worship and reflection and ministry And I believe as we've been talking, some of you have been thinking about what are the miracles that you need to see Jesus do in your life? Physical miracles, emotional miracles, relational miracles, financial miracles. And the beauty of this moment is there is no formula. When you look at Jesus and he does the miraculous, he never did it the same way twice. Isn't that incredible? Like, even with the feeding of the 5,000, he used different amounts of food than when he did it with the 4,000. He never did a miracle the exact same way. And I think what that teaches me is that in an environment like this, there is no right way to do it. There is no formula. There's no verbiage that you have to say to get Jesus to actually listen to what you're saying. There's no routine that we have to do. There's no amount of anointing oil that you need on your head. From where you're at, you can say, Jesus, I need you in this moment. I need you in this situation. And so we're going to be like Mary and just ask Jesus to intervene. And I don't know the miracles that you need. But together as a church, can we worship? Can we pray? Can we just bring these 
times to Jesus just for a moment as we close our time together. All right? So I'm going to pray for us. Bobby's going to lead us. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.